It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't need me to tell you it's been a terrible 12 months in every way. Or has it? amazing, astonishing things happened this year. A lot of the excitement might well come in things that we haven't even considered before. Decades from now, when I'm dead and you're old, what will this era be famous for? Perhaps not the suffering and stress, but something else altogether. This is it. This is big. The greatest medical advance in the last hundred years. Scientists have expressed their delight. Their hard work has paid off. In this same period, extraordinary scientific advances have taken place because of COVID and despite it. And then there's the asteroid strike that we may be able to prevent. We have the technology and we would have an effective way of defending the Earth should this be needed. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from the Times and the Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, three amazing scientific achievements in about 30 minutes. And for a change, nothing but good news. Throughout the pandemic, there's one chap at the Times we've been checking in with more than most. My name is Tom Whipple, and I am the science editor at the Times. Tom, it's been quite a year to be science editor. Do you remember when you used to have to go to the news desk and say, I think I've got quite a good science story in this and not got a lot of space? If you'll allow me a diversion, there's a cicada, a breed of cicada, which spends 13 years underground, and then they come up in one great flourishing. (laughs) And I think that's sort of been what science has been like. A lot of our time has been finding the massively interesting, but perhaps not terribly important, stories about dinosaurs and chimpanzees, with the greatest respect to chimpanzee and dinosaur scientists. This year, we haven't been this quirky thing to make readers say, well, I never. It's been absolutely front and centre. And far more has been going on in the science and scientific technology world than just the virus. Today, we bring you unsung tales of human ingenuity. One is an everything-changing advance in computer intelligence years in the making. Another has been accelerated to warp speed by the global vaccine effort. And later, I'll be talking to NASA about a mission launching this year, which I thought was only in the movies. We begin with the British artificial intelligence company called DeepMind. You might remember DeepMind from their previous hits, uh, Alpha <laughs> Zero. So this was a program which was able to beat the best people in the world at chess. And it didn't just beat them. 
it trounced them. It, to an extent, revolutionized the game. It discovered things that people didn't know were possible. It's changing how we understand chess, which is impressive, but arguably not that useful. But in December 2020, DeepMind announced the success of a program called AlphaFold. Biologists, normally a reserved bunch, started saying things to Tom like, I nearly fell off my chair and I never thought I'd see this in my lifetime. The rest of us said things like, you what? And what on earth is protein folding anyway? So protein folding, it sounds esoteric, and it is. It's also possibly the most important thing that goes on in your body. So our bodies are biological machines. At an atomic level, they work because little chains of atoms joined together, folded up, called proteins, act as machines that chop and slice and reproduce DNA. They're the things that go out and cure disease and cause disease. Antibodies are proteins. The spikes on the coronavirus are proteins. Proteins are completely integral to what we do. Now, there's a problem with proteins. Since we learned about genetic code, we can tell you exactly what a protein is made of. But what that structure looks like is largely a mystery to us. And it is absolutely critical to what it does and how it works. Now, until very recently, until essentially this year, the only real way to find out its structure was to do this thing called crystallography. You turn the protein into a crystal, and then you bash x-rays through it, and you see the shadow the x-rays make. And you do this from enough angles that you can reconstruct its structure. Now, to give you an example of how difficult this is, imagine that you had the Eiffel Tower and you had to decide what it looked like based only on its shadow at arbitrary different times of the day. And that's essentially what they were doing. And this would take a PhD to determine the structure of a protein. And there are millions of these things all throughout nature. What AlphaFold did is... It is a way of predicting how proteins fold. And for the first time, we have something that can get you the answer in sort of hours rather than years. Wow. Now, just so that we can draw this out a little bit, I mean, you've made it sound like it's nice that we move from having to take several years to do it to do it in hours. But actually, it's rather more than nice, isn't it? <laughs> It is. I mean, this is it's sort of this process in terms of quickly ruling in or out different drugs. This gives us tremendous possibilities. So if you think and this isn't hyperbole, but essentially everything in life rests on this. At the moment, there's loads of biology we do where you just wouldn't even think of getting someone to work out what the protein looks like and thus how it locks into other things. So, so yes, there are existing applications for it that are tremendously exciting. I suspect a lot of the excitement might well come in things that we haven't even considered before. Do you think in a way it's analogous to genome sequencing, which of course when we started sequencing genomes, it was an incredibly lengthy and expensive process and therefore would have limited application. And now it's become a much, much faster process and more accurate process. And now it's beginning to have applications in all kinds of areas, in every area. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly it. You know, science is littered with these things that are sometimes, you know, solutions looking for problems has been the the cruel way to put them. Although obviously <laughs> there there are there are massive problems to which this is a solution. But I think we're going to find all manner of problems, just as with genome sequencing, where this is a solution. Now, I should obviously put in the requisite caveats, which is. It's, it's not perfect yet, and it, it's not out there for use yet. But it was such a massive advance in accuracy compared to what was there before that, yes, I, I, th I think we're going to find it's going to open up all sorts of branches of biological research and probably stuff we, we haven't even thought about as well. Before we move on, let's just apply it theoretically to one particular area, which is Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's, famously, there's a lot of people who if you're talking to them about sequencing their genome, they say, yeah, but don't tell me if I'm carrying the gene for Alzheimer's because I don't want to know because there's no cure for it. There's nothing that you can do. And nobody really quite understands what causes it. But we do know that this is significantly to do with how proteins in the brain might plaque up, create plaques. Do you see the possibility that we could make very big inroads into something like Alzheimer's partially as a consequence of this advance? It's possible. Um, Alzheimer's remains quite mysterious. We do believe it's to do with proteins misfolding in the brain. In fact, some of the most advanced treatments we currently have for Alzheimer's, and the only ones that have shown any efficacy at all, are about attacking the proteins. They're about creating antibodies. They're about creating proteins to attack proteins, which tells us just how important proteins are. It would be lovely to think that a general unlocking of how proteins work could provide as yet unknown inroads into dealing with the pathology of Alzheimer's. This is it, a vaccine to send COVID-19 packing for good. 90% effective. Scientists have expressed their delight. The greatest medical advance in the last 100 years. Those first vaccine trial results were a fantastic moment for all of us, locked down and scared. But for scientists, they heralded something even bigger than the beginning of the end of the pandemic. Our second story is about something called mRNA. So the RNA is the name of the molecule, and RNA knocks around in the body and does all sorts of things. The M, the little m, stands for messenger. This is messenger RNA, and it's slightly the Cinderella genetic molecule. It hasn't had all of the razzmatazz of DNA, but it's crucial. What it does is it takes a message. So DNA tell your body what proteins to make. See, I said we'd be back to proteins pretty soon. But the way they tell the body what to do is through mRNA. It is the instructions from the DNA. It is the servant of the DNA. So it's a bit like my printer function. Yeah, I guess so. Your computer contains the marvellous thoughts of David Aronovich, but none of us would know those thoughts unless there was a way to transmit them to our brains, and it does so through the times printing them. So you send out your messenger sequencing of David Aronovich columns, which comes off the printing presses and then goes to the grateful recipients at their breakfast tables. <laughs> to, to complain about, oh God, look at that. Honestly, does he really? Anyway, so you have messenger RNA, and now we come on to the way in which messenger RNA has been the big thing this year of the COVID pandemic. So take me through that one. So at the beginning of the 
pandemic, there were several experimental vaccines that were made. And the most experimental was mRNA. If you had spoken to scientists then, and I did, they said, look, it's great we're making these mRNA vaccines, but let's be honest, it's great we're making the other ones we understand a bit better too. This is a big shot in the dark. Kate Bingham, the chair of our vaccines task force, I remember chatting to her in the spring and she said, you know, this is this is our big, hairy, scary bet, but we've made other bets as well that are a lot more sensible. The mRNA will be lovely if it comes off, but, but let's not hold our breath. mRNA has been a great hope for a long time. Billions have been put into biotech companies to develop drugs based on mRNA. And it's easy to see why. If you can hack this messenger system, if you can find ways to send the messages you want, then you can start changing what the proteins do. And as we already discussed with AlphaFold, proteins are the most important things in the body. They're what are doing things when the body is going right. They're what are doing things when the body is going wrong. If you can do things with proteins, then you can do all manner of things in the body, far beyond just mere vaccines to stop a global pandemic. So there have been billions invested, but there was a catch. Until this year, there had not been a single treatment based on mRNA. There were all of these companies, there were all of these hopes, but the hopes had never come off. No treatment at all? Nothing. So this was a massive shot in the dark. Okay, so <laughs> mRNA works, unlike, I mean, the, the way in which traditional vaccines work, you put a little bit of whatever it was so that the body recognises it, reacts to it a little bit, and the next time it comes up against it, it uh, is primed to work against it. And the mRNA works in a completely different way because it just inserts a messenger into the body and the messenger tells the body to what? It tells the body to make the spike protein from the coronavirus. So your cells start churning out this protein and your body then recognises this protein and it makes antibodies against it and T-cells against it, hopefully. When it comes in attached to something scary, it learns to attack it so that the scary thing is neutralised. Can I just get something clear, Tom? I've had the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is not an mRNA vaccine, right? Yeah. But people who've had the Pfizer vaccine have this very first mRNA treatment ever. Yeah, this is after all of the hopes. It's, and it sounds simple. So what I say is, so, you know, you, you put a bit of mRNA in a fatty shell, your, your cells gobble it up, they get confused, and they start doing what your mRNA has told them rather than what they want to do. That seems simple. Why can't we do it? Well, the problem is that your body is very good at recognising foreign genetic material. If it wasn't, then, as in fact one of the pioneers of this said to me, if it wasn't, then every time you ate spinach, your ears would go green. You know, this is <laughs> your, your body does not want to take up foreign genetic material and just do things with it. So it took years to find ways to send this stuff in covertly. And there were all of these hurdles. And it just so happens that this year they surmounted the hurdles just in time. It is actually quite extraordinary. Tell us a bit about the people who have done this. And I know that you actually interviewed one of the leading scientists involved with creating this vaccine. I, I know you're busy. I know you have quite important things to do. So I, I will be very quick. Yeah, I would 
Yeah, so yeah, I interviewed Kathleen Karako, who's an, an amazing woman. She's in her late sixties now. She's Hungarian. She fled Hungary in the mid nineteen eighties, hiding about a thousand pounds in their daughter's teddy bear for safekeeping, and she and her husband went to the US. She has worked with Moderna, who made one of the mRNA vaccines, and now with BioNTech, who made the Pfizer vaccine. And she is now keen to return to her day job. And so what are your other projects? I saw the multiple sclerosis paper, but what are the other things that are being looked at for mRNA? Many of them we pushed aside due to the pandemic. Yeah. And people are waiting. They essentially switched everything to coronavirus when it appeared, but they've got all sorts of plans for this. To, to give you some examples, so at the upper end, you make a cancer vaccine. So... If you have a cancer, your cancer is completely idiosyncratic to you. It'll have a unique genetic sequence and it'll be behaving in, in unique ways. And one of the ways that cancer works is it tricks your immune system and it manages to fly under the radar of your immune system. If you can sequence someone's cancer, so use all this genetic sequencing technology that's come of age in the past 20 years. Their personal cancer. Their personal cancer. And then find out the proteins that are being expressed on the outside of the tumor cells. And then you make a vaccine that churns out those proteins so that your immune system is trained to make antibodies against them. Your personal vaccine. Your personalized cancer vaccine. Suddenly, you have a way of attacking and spotting your own cancer. Previously, it was hidden, and now it is flagged to your immune system for destruction. And Kathleen Carrico thinks that is going to happen. She absolutely thinks it's going to happen. She spent her career thinking that mRNA is going to happen. We are also using uh, cancer vaccines. Each patient will get their own vaccine. As I understand it, for a while people have talked about the promise of mRNA, but until these vaccines, there hadn't been tangible clinical products. Has this changed everything about how you see the future going? Yes. Yeah. She confessed to me that she was worried she would end her career without ever seeing mRNA happening. I didn't know that I will live long enough to see it. Yeah. <laughs> I hoped. <laughs> I think she said something of a vindication after working in this field for 40 years. Congratulations, and, and from a personal perspective, thank you very much. <laughs> this is impossible, Tom, but, you know, it's your job, so you might as well do it. The future of medicine five, ten years ahead. This looks like a quantum leap, frankly, or something very like it. Can we make any prediction? I mean, or could we say that we will be able to sequence individuals' cancers and have mRNA treatments for them, let's say, within ten years? I think that's likely. There's a lot that's got to go right. There's the full testing process as well. But this has been such a boost for mRNA and such a proof that it works that I think we're going to see a lot of mRNA. Coming up, and I never thought I'd say this, NASA's planetary defence officer on the mission launching this year that could one day save the world. To enjoy more amazing science reporting every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get your first month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You never know what the future holds. It is literally the stuff of movies. Until it hits. An asteroid the size of Texas is heading for Earth and only Bruce Willis can save us. This new one you're tracking. How big? It's what we call a global killer. Nothing would survive, not even bacteria. Hi, my name is uh, Lindley Johnson. I'm the planetary defense officer at NASA. In real non-movie life, this is the man in charge of scanning space for another extinction event. Lindley Johnson, former U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, turned asteroid hunter-in-chief. I run the program that NASA has to detect all asteroids that might uh, have a potential to impact the Earth and also to figure out what we might do about it if we were to find one. And you'll be pleased to know that in the last 10 years, he's been made a full-time planetary defense officer. As we've all learned, once in an epoch events, pandemics, killer asteroids, can happen in your epoch. So perhaps we should take them more seriously. I thought, given the possibility of an impact threat, the Air Force should probably be thinking about this. But there was uh, some resistance on the part of the Air Force. They didn't see addressing a natural threat as really being one of their mission areas. And did NASA feel the same at first? Uh, Not at first either. Uh, (laughs) There was (laughs) resistance there as well. And this was back in the 90s, and that was really before there was a good understanding of the level of threat that these natural objects could present to the Earth. I want to come to those in a moment, but I'm going to ask you the obvious question, which you must be so tired of. But in the Hollywood movies, which is where most of us first came across the notion of an asteroid threat, so I think there was even one where Sean Connery played you. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite one. That's a meteor from way back in 1977. It cannot change its course, and it's going to strike the Earth in six days. That meteor is five miles wide, and it's definitely going to hit us. Very foresighted in, in a lot of ways, but yeah, Sean Connery plays the NASA lead dealing with these types of threats. It's sort of, you know, the position I'm in now. There's always the guy or the woman who says, I tell you this is a threat, and they don't listen until the last possible moment. Did you ever feel like that person? Well, I certainly recognize the role. Lindley, tell us about past asteroid impacts, and let's start with the last really big one in 1908. Well, 1908 in Siberia was the last impact of, I would say, significant effect on the surface. 
Now, this was an asteroid thought to be somewhere around maybe 50 or 60 meters in size. There wasn't too much known about it. In fact, it was some 20 years almost before there was even a expedition that, that went into that very remote region of Siberia to try to figure out what happened. There were all kinds of theories about it initially, you know, volcanic eruption, maybe some kind of a military accident, large explosion. The area of blast was quite obvious. There was, you know, some 2,000 square kilometers of trees that were knocked down by this blast. 2,000 square kilometers? That's correct. Mm -hmm. Wow. So it was really an enigma for, for many uh, decades. When nuclear weapons were tested and used in World War II, then the leading theory for a while was the effects were very similar to what you would see from a nuclear blast. And so this was thought, oh, this was some early test of a nuclear device or something like that. But that being that early, that's probably just as likely as another leading theory of the 50s and that it was some explosion of a alien spaceship in, in Earth's atmosphere. Neither one of those explanations are very likely, though, of course. And so when it came to understand that impacts of the Earth by natural objects, asteroids and comets, was still a real possibility. And so the obvious question is, if it had hit a city or close to a, a conurbation instead of the Siberian tundra, then it would have been a mega disaster. Oh, yes, very much. 1908 in Siberia, that's at the latitude that's roughly equivalent to where Moscow is. And had that event occurred about three hours later when Earth's rotation would have brought Moscow into that region, it could have changed the entire history of the 20th century. It's not some kind of abstract threat. One day in February 2013, a fireball shot across the skies of Chelyabinsk in Russia. A meteor 20 metres across exploded in an airburst. The force of the shockwave was enough to injure 1,500 people. I was actually with some of my colleagues at Vienna, Austria. We had been meeting for several years, negotiations as, as to you know what should be the international response uh, to this. And we were about to brief in the next day or so our recommendations. Then this impact of just a 20 meter sized object, you know, size of a large house, occurred over Shelyabinsk, uh, Russia. And so, you know, this was just kind of nature, you know, putting an explanation point <laughs> on our recommendations. And of course, uh, those recommendations were pretty uh, quickly accepted. Literally because, or partially because they'd just seen this happen. Yes, um, I think so. It could happen at any time. It's a very good point you make because with regard to the current pandemic, people were talking about how you would get a virus which had the right qualities only once every, say, 100 years. But then, of course... If you're at that moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's misleading to, you know, talk about these average intervals of these things occurring because nature happens at random and you need to be prepared for when it happens. DART, the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, is a mission to test a new asteroid deflection technology. A spacecraft will try to change the motion of a small moonlet, Dimorphos, which orbits a larger asteroid, Didymos. Seriously. We're going to hit an asteroid. That is our job. Dr. Elena Adams works at Johns Hopkins University and is the systems engineer on the DART mission. 
which means I'm responsible for all of the technical aspects of the mission, including the launch, the spacecraft itself, the ground system, how we're going to talk to the spacecraft, how bring the data down, all of that. <laughs> Not much then. No, nothing at all. <laughs> Anybody can do it. Sure. Well, the principle is very simple, and I think a child can understand it. The moon of the asteroid is rotating around the bigger asteroid, and the goal for us is just nudge it a little bit and slow it down or speed it up and to change its orbit around the larger asteroid. But the bigger picture is if an asteroid was coming towards Earth, would you be able to nudge it in such a way that you change its trajectory and make it miss Earth completely? And you're going to launch this autumn? Yes, we are in November. It is a staggering thing, Dr. Adams. I mean, it's an amazing thing. When I was a boy, we didn't imagine pocket telephones, you know, telephones that had computers in them. We imagined this, and you're doing it. Yeah, it is a very exciting mission. And what's best about this mission is that you can talk to people about it. You know, we don't want to be dinosaurs. This is a very important mission. Usually space missions are much longer. Think of Voyager, you know, it launched in 1977. It's still going. Here we're nine months. If everything goes well, there is no extended mission. (laughs) We are done. Okay, so it launches. Lift off of the Falcon 9... plus 30 seconds into this historic mission. And then nine months later, it's approaching Didymos. Now, what happens in those moments before it reaches Didymos and when it does? And what are you going to be looking at? About four hours out. We're going to switch from being regular spacecraft into an all-autonomous spacecraft. So from there on, the ground is just watching the images come down. M1D performance is nominal. Power and telemetry, nominal. About an hour out before we hit, we'll finally see a one pixel that is Dimorphous, the moon we're trying to hit. And let me just tell you, it's the most exciting time because we don't know what that moon looks like at all. I mean, is it a dog bone? Is it a big rock? We don't know. <laughs> but we have to hit the center of whatever it is. So this whole time we're streaming video back to Earth wow. of, uh, of us guiding ourselves into this little dot. And then about two minutes out, we say, smart nav, just let go of control, let's just glide ourselves in, and we hit. I got so caught up. Honestly, that was one of the most interesting interviews in a year of doing this. I'm so grateful to you. Lindley, you're talking about this in a a gloriously modest way, I think, because what you're actually telling me is that we could actually have a working asteroid defence system. I would not call it an operational uh, system by any means, but it, it shows us that we have the technology and, you know, we would have an effective way of defending the Earth should this be needed in the future. Tom, one of the things that I've personally felt guilty about is what my generation has bequeathed to the younger generation in terms of the climate emergency, antibiotic resistance, the antibiotics we've relied upon may not work. And I'm wondering whether, in a funny kind of way, we are not on the edge of redeeming ourselves a little as a result of 
what we've been doing in the last year or so. I think you're too hard on your generation. I suspect that every generation feels like that. And yes, there are massive problems. But, you know, humanity moves on, human ingenuity moves on. And I I, I actually often feel, and this is not a good thing to feel, but I often feel humanity as a whole, to completely redeem itself on the planet, all it has to do is stop one really big asteroid strike. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guests, Times Science Editor Tom Whipple, NASA Planetary Defence Officer Lindley Johnson, and DART System Engineer Dr Elena Adams. And earlier we heard Tom speaking with Kathleen Carrico, mRNA pioneer and a smart bet for a future Nobel Prize winner. We'll put a link to the full article in the description of this episode. The producer was James Shield, the executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by James Shield and Tom Birchall. And we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode, so please do leave us a review in your podcast app. We read all of them. A bit sad, really. Or send an email to storiesofourtimes@thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.